whatever your angle is, I mean, you could come at this from you don't care at all about any environmental issues and that's all just a bunch of hippie BS and you don't care at all. And that's fine with me. I, I personally, I came at this from wanting to do something that environmentally, not just sustainable, but actually regenerative. And I, you know, this fits the bill and it's one of the most amazing opportunities I've seen or things that people could do literally in their backyard or through their homestead or farm or, I mean, any kind of food business, any kind of forest business, you know, these materials are out there and they're basically all just sitting there with no value to them because people don't know they can do this and make something that's worth more per pound than coal as the end product, but to get all this free energy off it through the process. Welcome to the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast, the show where you learn how to plan, build, and live the tiny lifestyle. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and this is episode 76 with Galen Brown, where we will be exploring the possibility of heating your tiny house with compost. When I was teaching at Yestermorrow, I was perusing the library. They have quite a selection of books all about design and building and architecture. And I came across this book called The Compost-Powered Water Heater. It's not super long. It's only about 140 pages. And I read it pretty much in one sitting. Um, It's pretty amazing. It really details the experimentation and the work that has been done in using, harvesting, really, the heat from a compost pile and using that to heat a greenhouse, heat a barn, heat water um, for really any heating needs. And I just knew that I had to ask the author on the show. And when I did, I was surprised to find out that he also lives in a tiny house. It's so fitting. I hope you stick around for the conversation. I learned a lot and I think you will too. But first, I want to tell you about our sponsor for today's episode, the Tiny House Forum. Are you frustrated by how fragmented Tiny House information is online? Tiny House Forum is an online community for exchanging information, ideas, and resources related to the Tiny House movement all in one central location. At Tiny House Forum, you can have conversations with others who are interested in the Tiny House lifestyle, those currently living the Tiny House lifestyle, and tiny house businesses and organizations that can provide guidance along the way. Tinyhouseforum.com is 100% free to use and joining is easy. Head on over to tinyhouseforum.com to participate in the discussions or start a new topic of your own today. If that didn't already sound great, right now you can be entered to win $500 cash by joining Tiny House Forum and making your first few posts. Learn more about the contest at tinyhouseforum.com where you can sign up and be entered to win $500 cash. Again, that's tinyhouseforum.com, where you can sign up to be entered to win $500 cash. All right. I am here with Galen Brown. Galen is a jack of all trades and slave to none and author of the Compost Powered Water Heater book. 
He lives with his wife and son in a tiny house he built on the back of an old flatbed truck and an old Airstream trailer in the sleepy hot springs town of Truth or Consequences, New Mexico. Originally from Vermont, he has traveled and lived in many places across North and South America, Europe, and the Caribbean. In the past, he was VP of Sales and Marketing for AgriLab Technologies, the world's leading engineering firm for compost heat recovery systems, and he previously held several senior management roles with companies like Grow Solar, 1% for the Planet, and Green Mountain Coffee Roasters. Galen Brown, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ethan. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And what a great bio. How did you come across Truth and Consequent? No, Truth or Consequences, New Mexico? Uh, it was just one of those funny-looking places on the map that we noticed when we were touring around the Southwest. And uh, it turns out to be quite an interesting little place. And we kind of moved here with a hunch that we thought we'd like it and that we'd stay, even though we were in the mode to keep roaming. Uh, And that was about two and a half, actually more than two and a half years ago, close to three years ago that we got here and we just decided to stay put and do our thing here. Nice. So were you traveling in the the flatbread Airstream combo? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We had a house in Vermont that we were renting out in the winter to skiers and taking off for warmer weather and roaming around with the Dodge Lodge pulling uh, the Airstream. We call it the Dodge Lodge, and the Airstream's name is Steady Betty. I love it. Uh, so we did a couple couple winters of that, and then finally sold our house and just stayed put in the Southwest in general. At least that was our plan. Um, and now we're pretty much stayed put in truth or consequences. Awesome. Well, that sounds sounds like an awesome place. I, I love a good hot springs. And unfortunately, if you want to have a hot springs here in Vermont, you need to either burn some wood or make a compost-powered hot water heater. Yeah, that was my first compost power project, actually, was to do a Jean Payne mound with the wood chip and water lines inside. And all I used it for was to heat a little tub on our porch. That was the tub that my son was actually born in. Uh, so that was our first use, was looking for <laughs> hot spring. Um, cool. Yeah, truth or, truth or consequences is interesting. It's one of the only places I've been that the whole downtown is sitting on a big hot spring aquifer. and. Just about anybody who owns a piece of property can drill a well and have their own kind of endless hot spring. Uh, the water is only, I think you dig about six feet down before you get to the water in most places. So it's a high water table and it's full of all kinds of healing minerals and about 110 degrees typically. Uh, so we, we love it. Sounds like paradise. Maybe the name is designed to keep people away. That's, you know, I think that's the effect it has because most people get a visceral kind of anti-reaction to the ideas of truth or consequences. I think it's like, oh, yeah, no, that's cool, but I'm not really, yeah, I don't need that today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so um, you already mentioned John Payne, and I figured, why don't we just jump into it? Maybe start with, you know, who who was John Payne and what did he what was his kind of contribution to this whole thing? Yeah, so he was a forester farmer in southern France in the 70s. Well, most of his life he lived there. But in the 70s, he started experimenting with ways to make better topsoil for his farms. And he was in an arid kind of deserty climate that had thin soil. And um, he's, I think, had some kind of contract with the Forest Service to trim the brush to re- reduce forest fire risk 
And so he had all this brush and he thought, hey, why don't I chip this up and try to make, you know, try to compost it and try to see if I can make good topsoil. And over years of process of trying to make good compost with just wood as the only input, you know, not, it wasn't an animal farm. He didn't have manure. He wasn't really doing compost the typical way. Uh, conventional wisdom at that time and today still tells people that you can't make a good uh, high carbon, high nitrogen compost with just wood because there's not much nitrogen. Um, he figured out there's ways to do that. And uh, part of his method was just piling it up and making the material super saturated in water. And then that water over time would dissipate, but that would keep the microbes alive. And as the water evaporates, there's space for air, which um, thermophilic compost means that the microbes that require oxygen are dominant in the system. And those are the microbes that put out heat. So there was a sweet spot that Jean Payne found where he could basically make a giant pile of wood chips with uh, water pipes coiled throughout the pile and then just pump water through to make endless hot water. And he got a little bit of fame from that. Um, and there was a big kind of push towards seeing this as something that could be scalable or other ways to apply the idea in the late 70s. And then he unfortunately died of a heart attack at a fairly young age in the early 80s. And the whole thing kind of fizzled out uh, with him. There is still, I think, a Jean Payne society that's got his family involved that is still doing some educational things around it. Um, I ran into his story and a guy who had done some understudy with Jean Payne, who based in Boston and did a lot of compost work and was just asking, how come no one's doing this? What's going on? How come this died? Does this work? And I couldn't really find any answers. So I just started playing with the idea in my own front yard, uh, with piles, you know, truckloads, dump truckloads of wood chips and bark mulch. And, um, it worked, you know, it wasn't necessarily predictable. We weren't sure how long or how much heat or what the real best approach was. So I put a little nonprofit research group together with a few other compost experts and we called that compost power. And we did a bunch of backyard experiments and, you know, kept seeing signs that this thing seems to work in it. Uh, there were examples where the pile would stay hot through the whole long, cold Vermont winter. And we were still, you know, still able to see that this thing can hold up. Uh, then I kind of accidentally ran into Brian Jaros, who uh, is the CEO of AgriLab Technologies. Um, this is all, I guess, seven or eight years ago, 10 years ago. And it turns out he had been working on the same idea, but a whole different approach. And sort of funny how a bunch of people could be working on the same idea, but with completely different approaches that were... You know, and we were all located in Vermont and none of us knew each other. And it was this big revelation of, wow, seems like we're the only people in the world working on this. And just by chance, we're neighbors. So let's work together. Um, that kind of led to AgriLab expanding and becoming a, a, a big focus for, for growth. And it's still doing its thing. It's a tough market. We're basically trying to sell engineered compost aeration systems to uh, farms and commercial compost operations. Uh, the AgriLab approach is basically to pump, push or pull air through the compost pile with big perforated pipes that are underneath the pile. So you can not have to worry about pipes of water inside the material. You can just pile it up and then the 
aeration system moves air through the pile so you don't have to mechanically tumble the windrow or the compost pile. Uh, typical compost operations are using tractors or big compost turners to turn the pile typically once a week for 8 to 12 to 16 weeks, depending on the material. So it's very labor and fuel and equipment intensive and expensive process to make compost typically because once the pile loses oxygen, the microbes go into a, a not happy place in terms of making good compost. And that also creates lots of odor issues. So typical compost is lots of equipment, lots of diesel, turning piles all the time to keep them aerated. With the AgriLab approach, we actually just suck air down through the pile into the perforated pipes underneath that are kind of buried in the ground. And then that air is typically 150 to 170 degrees, and it's full of moisture. So we're vacuum sucking that hot, moist air out of the pile, moving air through the pile. And then that hot, wet air goes through a special heat exchanger to capture the heat and to be able to make continuous, predictable amounts of uh, hot water for space heating, greenhouse heating, wash water, and also to be able to use that heat to then dry the finished compost into a, a form where it's very lightweight and easy to transport with the right moisture content at the end of the process. So we kind of blast hot air back into the piles toward the last two or three weeks of typically a an eight-week compost aeration process. The net result of the whole AgriLab approach is you get this predictable amount of heat that you can capture, but you also cut the cost of producing compost by about 50% usually in terms of the uh, cost of tumbling and turning and handling material, and it speeds up the process uh, about twice as fast so you can produce compost quicker. So it's an ideal process for anyone who's trying to make compost in the most cost-effective way with uh, every kind of efficiency you can think of. And then also have this free bank of thermal energy you can draw on for other purposes. Um, you know, the dairy farm approach could use that heat beyond space heating and wash water. Uh, it could be used to make uh, yogurt, for example, or other things that would help be inputs for cheese production. Uh, there's an you know, endless list of things you can do with heat. Um, greenhouses are the things people think of the most in Vermont because you know, you have six months of the year where you can't grow anything. And so this enables year-round growing. One of our projects in Vermont, uh, Jasper Hill Farm in Greensboro, I think it's been about six or seven years since they've been heating a huge greenhouse through the winter without any heat other than the compost system. And they're not doing a commercial greenhouse, but they're growing food for their employees and, and doing some funny things like growing pineapples in the middle of the winter in Vermont. Um, just to show off in a sense. But uh, so the, the whole concept is one of those things where, wow, this works. And yes, it actually makes finan uh, fantastic financial sense. Um, does require some investment, but it's uh, in a sense a no brainer. So I'm still kind of patiently waiting for this idea to really become the normal thing that every dairy farm, every feedlot, every you know big food processor that has lots of food waste. Um, every commercial greenhouse operator that needs heat in the winter could be doing a system like this that complements both their thermal needs and makes their own topsoil out of their you know residuals from their production. So um, it's 
one of those slow burn kind of things. And um, we'll see how long it takes to become the norm. Yeah, let's hope it catches on. It makes it makes a lot of sense for a, a you know a commercial operation just because the compost itself is is a commodity and is yeah. something that yeah. can be sold. And then the heat is free heat. So and that's a major cost for everyone, especially mm-hmm. here in Vermont. Just keeping keeping your space warm. Yeah. Well, a lot of people don't you know realize what compost is. Um, a lot of the commercial agriculture you know people have been taught or pushed over the years to rely on uh, artificial fertilizers and not don't don't waste their time with compost and that's because historically it's been kind of hard to do it right and kind of expensive and you know so it's an evolving mindset in the you know different kind of sections of the agricultural world but the cost per ton of top quality compost is higher than the cost per ton uh, uh, for coal wow and you know, they can make something that's more valuable than coal and they're getting a net positive energy yield from the process of making it where they're getting almost as much energy as that same amount of coal, again, just from the from the heat they capture. So it's, you know, fun in all the ways that anyone who's into environmental sustainability or financial innovation uh, would be excited about. And it's just one of those inertia situations where you have the way things are done and sometimes it takes a while for people to realize that there's a better way. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about our sponsor for today's show, tinyhouseforum.com. Founder Chuck Camfield became interested in tiny house living after attending a festival in 2018, but was disappointed when he couldn't find a central online resource for exchanging information and encouragement with other tiny house hopefuls dwellers, and builders. So he assembled a team of talented web developers and Tiny House Forum was born. Tiny House Forum is dedicated to inspiring and nurturing all who are interested in furthering their knowledge of the Tiny House Revolution. And right now, you can be entered to win $500 cash by joining Tiny House Forum and making your first few posts. You can learn more about the contest and sign up at tinyhouseforum.com. Thank you so much to Tiny House Forum for sponsoring our show. Well, I want to steer back to kind of the small-scale backyard systems, and I think I think you'll find that in the tiny house movement, there are a lot of people who are interested in tinkering and implementing alternative ideas like this. So maybe you could just break down what the basics of the kind of backyard system are, like what materials do you need, how do you set it up, you know, and how long can you expect it to to last? Yeah. So for well, the Jean Payne system, the idea itself is some type of mixture of wood chips, bark mulch, shredded woody material as the primary uh, ingredient, along with water. Um, the way he did it was he would soak the material super saturated in water, lay out a circular pad um, of maybe a foot of, of that material, just spread it out, and then run concentric coils of uh, black poly tubing along kind of throughout that whole layer and then cover it with another foot of material, lay another stretch of that black poly tubing and just build like a 10 layer cake with the pipes and the compost pile. Um, typically the heat in that kind of situation would be anywhere from about 110 to 150 degrees as far as the pile temperature. And the trick we found in the winter 
Well, you had to go pretty big to keep the pile with enough thermal mass to keep the winter temps at bay and keep the pile hot. Um, but we were typically doing 12 to 15 foot diameter piles that were six to eight feet tall, um, 25 to 35 cubic yards of wood chips and bark mulch, typically a mix, but depends what you have access to. And they, they would stay hot for a year. Sometimes we had a couple that stayed hot for about a year and a half. So there was heat in the pile through the second winter. It wasn't quite as hot. So I would probably say aim for a year per pile. And the problem we saw in about half the cases, the pile temp after three or four months uh, collapsed. And that was because, usually because the material had dried out too much. And so the compost microbes didn't have access to enough water. And so they went into a kind of a colony collapse. So that's a trick, a challenge that's somewhat difficult because you have to, you know, put enough water in that material to last a year. And, you know, how much is it going to rain? How dry is the weather where you're doing it? So it's not easy to predict uh, reliability with that Jean Payne approach. Um, we actually have got a, in terms of the backyard thing, it's still, I wouldn't, tell people don't do it just have a you know have an alternate well don't do it, you know ha- have an expectation that it's likely to work but that there are a couple variables that aren't really in your control uh, we would would try to soak the piles again in the late fall just with a hose um, knowing that they were gonna need that moisture and need that heat before the winter temps set in but if the system you know, loses moisture and gets frozen in the winter. There's really no way to bring it back in the middle of the winter because it's so cold out. So that's a trick. But if you're not dealing with severe winter, you know, weeks and weeks below zero, it's a lot easier to feel reliable with it. And you don't necessarily have to go gigantic. Um, We've got some designs for basically building like a wooden shed type of structure that's got, you know, like a garage door on one side. Uh, could be out of concrete or even just, you know, marine grade plywood. Um, put some aeration pipes, perforated drainage tubes on the floor. And then you can potentially do the AgriLab approach, but in a low-tech way where you can still do some of the coiled water lines in the material. Or... You can just rely on pulling hot air out of the pile and running that through a radiator. You know, you can, uh, a heat exchanger is just a bunch of pipes of water, of, you know, metal that have water or glycol in them and a bunch of metal that lets the heat penetrate when the air is blown through. So we, we had one project where we helped that this guy basically just ran an old, had an old tractor radiator with a big box fan behind it. And he was pumping water through the system, and that was his heat exchanger. And um, so there's there's ways to do aeration without super complicated expense, and there's ways to make the whole thing in a container, in a sense, so that you could, you know, maximize the amount of heat that you can capture and make it easy to load and unload the container with a small tractor, bucket loader, that kind of thing. Um, building Jean Payne piles over and over every year. You know, I did that for, I guess, about five years, pretty much 
every year rebuilt the one at my house and was helping dozens of other people do theirs. It's cool, but after a while you go, wait, I think there's a better way to handle this material and a better way to take this concept without the wrestling with pipes and hoping it works when sometimes it doesn't. So that's kind of where the aeration um, idea comes in, that you can basically suck some air through the pile into your um, aeration fan into a pipe and then run that hot air over a heat exchanger to capture the heat. Um, now, is that more or less efficient than just running the water directly through the pile? Well, it's more because it, having control over the aeration lets you keep the mic, the compost where it wants to be. So there's a sweet spot where the, the compost material wants to have 10 to 15 percent oxygen content as far as the content of the gas or the air that's inside the compost pile. So you need a relatively high oxygen percentage for the compost to be as active as possible, which means it'll be as hot as possible. It's possible to over aerate and make the pile too hot and the whole thing could, in theory, catch fire. You know, there's so it's right. That's the classic problem of the farmer's barn that's full of moist hay. Yeah. Hay, same thing. Yeah. 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 Same exact thing. So um, having a way to control the aeration and it's not rocket science to keep an eye on the oxygen content of the air that you're sucking out of that pile. Um, you could run a simple fan as your aerator. You know, there's ways to do it on the cheap. Um, but of course, the problem, there's a lot of volatile organic VOCs in compost that tend to wear out uh, materials that are not built for it. So with the AgriLab system, everything's stainless steel, the fan, the heat exchanger, all the piping is HDPE that can't corrode. Um, and they're dealing with a lot of you know, food scraps and manure feedstocks for a lot of the AgriLab systems versus just wood chips. Woody materials doesn't have as many of the corrosive compounds like, uh, you know, the, the ammonia kinds of things that you'll see a higher amount of in, in food waste or manure composting. Um, so back to, you know, how to apply this idea to the baby backyard small scale thing. Um, I, I walked through a number of projects and a, a number of ideas for that. Conceptual ideas and designs in the book, the compost powered water heater. But I think that's still a a realm of discovery that that needs more innovation to make a a standard, predictable, small scale approach that you know you can have higher liability with, um, for the small scale homestead or the you know small farm kind of approach. But um, it definitely works. You know, it's definitely a figure it out to make it optimized for what materials you have access to for compost. Um, you know, it just depends that that's the biggest variable and different. Right. It seems like if you are, you know, if you have a tractor with a wood, sh wood chipper and you have access to land with trees right. that you need to chip up, you know, your right. materials are free, but I would, I would imagine that if you're going to be, you know, buying 20 to 40 cubic yards of wood chips and bark mulch, that could actually be somewhat expensive. Yeah, yeah that you can spend a lot. I mean, it, there's a big range depending on where you live and how active the forest industry is in that area. Um, 
what time of year, that kind of thing. So there's ways to find that stuff for free. You know, the power line companies are chipping to clear the power lines. And, you know, the, we that was one of my biggest, how to scavenge for massive amounts of free wood chips and bark mulch. And, you know, that gets old too. So, right. you know, if, um, as far as the reliability of just trying to do these projects wherever we could find materials, um, it's not exactly sustainable thinking of it that way, but it was how we learned. And, you know, I think anybody who sees the, uh, whatever your angle is, I mean, you could come at this from, you don't care at all about any environmental issues and that's all just a bunch of hippie BS and you don't care at all. And that's fine with me. I, I personally, I came at this from wanting to do something that environmentally, not just sustainable, but actually regenerative and I, you know, this fits the bill and it's one of the most amazing opportunities I've seen for things that people could do literally in their backyard or through their homestead or farm or, I mean, any kind of food business, any kind of forest business, you know, these materials are out there and they're basically all just sitting there with no value to them because people don't know they can do this and make something that's worth more per pound than coal as the end product, but to get all this free energy off it through the process makes it a you know financially a no-brainer um if you do it right and if you you know want to work with these materials so you know there's a few motivational layers that you have to fit to be the perfect kind of person to get into this but um it's totally viable yeah and i think just hearing you talk about it i'm like i want to do that (laughs) it's it's really cool it um You mentioned before the design for, you know, a small building that has the aeration system in it. Is there somewhere that people can go to to kind of read your latest thinking about these projects or maybe see see these designs? Um, I'm not sure. I know that the guys at AgriLab have just put a project together that's in that that realm. And I know they have several other updated designs. I haven't been working actively with the company for the last two years, um, but I know there are things in that realm that they've been cooking up both from a design plan, conceptual, or from actual projects. So um, agrilabtech.com, A-G-R-I-L-A-B-T-E-C-H.com is the website that they can be contacted through, and they are very happy to help people do design plans for their particular goals and situation. Um, so that's, you know, something that AgriLab is, you know, very happy to help people with. And I, I would point everybody there for now. Um, the book, the compost powered water heater is I, you know, it's what, seven years ago. I'm trying to remember when that, when I wrote that it's been a while. Um, it definitely has a lot of good theoretical designs and, practical realities from a bunch of projects we did as well as a lot of the history of the concept with explaining how Jean Payne approached it. Um, so that'd be, you know, two, two starting points. Um, but I would, it's not that old. It's uh 2014. Yeah. yeah okay. What and year is it? <laughs> yeah. It's currently 2019 for another few months. <laughs> and, you know, I, the, I found, you know, chapter five, which is, project planning guide for a small scale champagne system. And that pretty much lays it out. Like you don't need much more than this book. Um, 
to to do that style system. So I definitely recommend it. And I'll link to all these things that we're talking about um, on the show notes page, which I'll I'll give the URL for at the end of the show. Um, I was actually curious to ask you a bit. Well, actually, one more thing about the tiny house movement is just that, you know, I would say that we are more receptive and open to compost than most others just because right. of the popularity of the humanor toilets that, you know, yeah. Joseph Jenkins have popularized. He was a former guest on the show and, you know, people who are moving, people who are moving a lot or just aren't necessarily going to have an easy connection to septic or sore are just, right. they, they go to it for the convenience, but then, um, you know, people kind of fall in love with it and are like, this is, this is great. I don't want a flush toilet anymore. Well, his book, wasn't it called Holy Shit? Isn't that the name of his book? Um, it's called The Humanor Handbook. Oh, I must be thinking, uh, maybe that was a title of a review about the book, but um, yeah, I, well, we have a co- had a composting toilet when we were traveling, um, and it's, it's a similar thing that I learned just from experience using it. It was the sea head, which is basically a yeah. simple bucket tumbler, and the, the key of it, though, is it separates the urine from the, the feces, and somehow, I didn't realize how much but that pretty much eliminates the whole odor issue like the ammonia the urine factor is the biggest reason that right you know all this stuff has odor issues and so from a home scale like i I still have lots of sort of designs in my head about the ideal human scale you know homestead or even tiny house compost system that handles everything from the humanure to food scraps to the yard waste with a little containerized aerated chamber that, you know, maybe sits outside the building and is fed from a toilet chute. And then you can access it from outside to throw in yard waste um, with some kind of aeration and mechanical tumbling. That whole thing could run on a, a solar panel where the aeration only happens in the daytime when the sun hits the solar panel. That's totally fine. You can have a, you know, an aggressive aeration for 12 hours and then this thing shuts off at night and rests. That's actually good for for a compost process. And you don't need a complicated electrical thing to run the aeration fan to keep the uh, the system going. And then another little water pipe thing built around the container, like on the walls of the container that captures the heat and lets you move water through that to, to make that your water heater. Um, I feel like there's a scale for that concept of uh, at every level of human habitation from the tiny house to the big building in the city, you know, the basement of every building could have one of these systems that captures value from that whole waste stream. Instead of spending gajillions of gallons of water, that's perfectly good to move that material to the sewage treatment plant where they basically just dilute it and dump tons of chemicals in it and then dump it all in the river. Super expensive, terrible environmentally. Um, there's a there's a total better way and it's not rocket science it's just everybody's afraid of the smell issues and the lack of experience with how to deal with that makes people say oh no I'm not even you know I'm not even going to go there um so I think you're right I think tiny house people who dared to see you know a lot of boat people use composting toilets for the same kinds of reasons um and they've they learned that there's a way to make this not annoying and it actually works great. And, um, you know, how to do this 
better and better and get more and more value out of this so-called waste stream. Uh, meanwhile, you know, the farming and agriculture world is, you know, more and more, the cost of fertility is higher and higher. And here we are just dumping all this fertility into the river instead of composting it. Well, before we wrap up, um, I was hoping you could tell us more about your tiny houses or tiny house, uh, the Dodge Lodge and the Steady Betty. Um, yeah, happy to. Um, I built, I've got a, it's not that old, it's 2003 or no, 2001 Dodge Ram, a one ton flatbed pickup. So it's just a small, you know, nine foot bed. And I built a a stick frame box on the back. And it's, you know, basically just tongue and groove cedar for the walls, two by fours. Um, I don't have a second layer of siding. And it's uninsulated. So it's very breathable. <clears throat> I wanted to make sure we didn't have any condensation, humidity, mold possibilities. Um, so, you know, it's tiny so it's easy to heat and i actually have a homemade swamp cooler that i use in the summer to cool it which is just a a mesh screen and a hose with mist dripping onto it and a fan in the window blowing in cool air works great in dry climates it's um right now about 93 and it feels like 100 in the sun but i'm sitting inside and it's 78 uh, just from that so um, try to keep it low tech. It's uh, I did a, a membrane roof. Uh, it's a flat roof, but the front has a little angle in the front part to give it a little bit of aerodynamics. And then the bottom half of the wall is uh, galvalume metal roofing. So it's tongue and groove cedar on the top half, galvalume metal on the bottom, and the cedar. You know, it has knots and some cracks, and there's a few spots I can see light through, and a few spots where if the rain's blowing sideways, a little bit of water comes through. I used a, a rosewood oil, Brazilian rosewood oil on the outside, uh, but that was a few years ago. Last time I put that on, it's still holding up to the sun and wind in the southwest. And it still looks good. Um, it's basically just our bedroom and office. I built some nice folding shelves along the whole inside so I can have lots of storage space or fold them all up if I need to fill the whole thing up with bikes or gear or whatever. Um, okay. And then the Airstream's about 30-year-old, 32-foot uh, Airstream. Uh, the Dodge Lodge and the Airstream hitched up were about 58 feet long. They were actually longer than most of the Wow. Semi tractor trailer trucks all together. So it's uh, you know, it's a double cab truck. And so that is quite a sight going down the road. And a little bit tricky to do the U turns, but actually the length of the truck puts the pivot point kind of near the middle. So turning isn't as difficult as you'd think to, to make turns that you can stay on track with. And we went back and forth to Vermont. We spent a lot of time in Austin, Texas, and toured most of the Southwest. And then every summer, we'd go back to Vermont. We put a lot of miles on. Uh, the truck is actually set up to run on waste veggie oil, uh, which I did, uh, I don't know how many miles, probably 
I'm maybe 15 or 20,000 miles on oil, on the veggie oil. I've got two 30-gallon tanks and a series of filtration steps in between, and I can switch from regular diesel to the veggie oil um, anytime I want. I haven't been driving the truck the last few years. It's just been sitting here, so we haven't put, put miles on that. But um, altogether, I have enough fuel capacity to go 2,000 miles without needing more fuel um even towing that's amazing so that's one of that was kind of a oh wow that's kind of cool i guess i can either get to mexico or canada no matter where i am in the u.s that's great <laughs> and you never know when you'll need to go <laughs> right yeah uh, we, we also have a portable fold out 200 watt solar setup uh, i was gonna put it on the roof but you know most of the time we're trying to park in the shade so i realized it's way better to have a foldable, portable solar setup that you can just put anywhere um, and run the wires to the to the batteries. So I can use that to keep the two batteries in the airstream happy as far as uh, running all the lights and ventilation, and uh, the fridge can run on propane. But I can actually I have a, a couple small fridges that uh, can actually run off that solar system as well that are. You know, separate. So we we always had fun, kind of being ready for uh, unknowns, but just trying to be more self reliant on all this stuff from a absolutely, you know, convenient point of view. Like there are so many places that we can go camping, and we don't care if there's hookups. Um, that was a big difference, you know, as far as like enjoying all the different amazing places to travel um, in the U.S. alone. I mean. We fell in love with the Southwest, but the whole country is full of gems and full of places to, you know, enjoy this lifestyle. And I feel like there's, you know, millions of people who are doing clock punching desk jobs that they could do from anywhere. And they, if they figured out how to, you know, negotiate with their employer that, hey, I'm in front of a computer all day. Uh, I'm on the phone all day. It doesn't matter where I am. I need to be mobile. I'm taking, I'm taking off and I'm going to keep this job and I'm going to, keep doing this for you and you're not going to notice a difference and i feel like there's millions of people who could say that and get, and make it happen but haven't dared to or haven't felt like it was possible because there's so many unknowns with this kind of lifestyle and if you don't like the unknowns then you won't do it but we like the unknowns it's fun to you know have that adventure of hey where are we going to go next month and you know how many times when we were traveling i'd be doing conference calls with my laptop after hiking up to the top of a ridge of a canyon to get cell service. And at the moment it was stressful because I had an important call and I didn't have service and I had to find a, you know, but so many times that worked out to be so, um, I don't even know the words. It's like rewarding. Amazing. Um, yeah. You know, so I just, I feel like maybe the Southwest of this country is where a lot of people you run into more people who are doing this sort of modern gypsy professional kind of mashup lifestyle that doesn't really fit into any categories people have in their mind about what it's like to, you know, be quote unquote homeless, which is how some people see our lifestyle. We still love it. You know, we actually bought property in TRC. Um, it's a little RV park, um, but we're still living in our, you know, mobile mobile mansion and loving it. Well, that's awesome. I'm sure our listeners would love to see some photos of your, of your setup, if you're willing to share them. 
Oh well, yeah, I forgot. I'll I'll email you some. I I meant to do that, but I will. Awesome. Uh, put them there. Well, Galen Brown, thank you so much. This was such a wide ranging conversation, and I I really enjoyed all of it. So thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you too, Ethan. It's great talking to you, and um, let's keep in touch. There's probably other stuff we can keep perplexing on here. Thank you so much to Galen Brown for being a guest on the show. You can find all the show notes from today's episode, including photos of Steady Betty and the Dodge Lodge and links to Galen's book at thetinyhouse.net slash 076. One quick note before we go, I love hearing from podcast listeners, and I've just created a new way to hear from you. I'm actually going to start accepting listener questions, and my plan is to do a show a month or every few weeks where I answer your questions. So head over to thetinyhouse.net slash ask if you have a question and press the appropriate button to record and submit your question. It can be any kind of question from technical ones about tiny houses or design questions or lifestyle questions. Anything's on the table. So I'd love to hear from you. Again, that's thetinyhouse.net slash ask. And obviously, if you do submit a question, I may use it on the show. Well, I want to thank our sponsor for this week, tinyhouseforum.com. Don't forget to head over there where you can win $500 for signing up and making your first few posts. And that's all for this week. I'm your host, Ethan Waldman, and I'll be back next week with another episode of the Tiny House Lifestyle Podcast.